Well, hey everyone. Welcome to episode 303 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Pat Payne. This week, I had an amazing time chatting it up with one of my favorite photographers, Siegfriedo Zimmerman. Siegfriedo is an ecologist for his day job and a fantastic nature photographer in his spare time. He combines his knowledge of ecological processes to make some really stunning images, which is what we talk about in this week's show at length. Before we dive in, I have a few announcements. First up, I want to let you know about a workshop that I'm co-leading from Munch Workshops with my friend Joseph Roybel to White Pocket in Arizona from June 6th through June 11th. White Pocket is hands down one of my favorite places on earth. The workshop is focused on night photography, but we will have plenty of opportunities to make stunning images throughout the course of the day as well. The workshop includes hotel accommodations, food, posh camping accommodations, and lots of time to review images and processing techniques. If you're interested in, to learn more, just head over to muchworkshops.com for more information or find a link in the show notes. I also wanted to take one moment to thank our latest Patreon supporters. Terry Jones, Mika Boynton, Tom Baptiste, Chris Wyman, Lynn Pitts, and Steve Rosendahl. These six awesome individuals joined an exceptional group of people who are financially supporting the podcast on Patreon while gaining access to bonus episodes and early releases for the podcast. If you too would like to support what we're doing, please head over to patreon.com forward slash f-stop and listen. Thanks in advance. I appreciate you a lot. Okay, let's get to this week's episode with Siegfriedo Zimmerman. Right, Sigfrido Zimmerman, it's awesome to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Matt. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, I think you've been recommended by like 97 of our guests, and literally every time someone's like, "Oh, you should have this person on your podcast," they, you know, people DM me on Instagram, Sigfrido Zimmerman. I'm like, "Yes, yes, I know. He's he's amazing. I I will get him on for sure." And here we are. <laughs> Well, that's really nice to know. Um, you know, I'm I'm really happy to be here. I've been listening to your podcast for a few years now, and you've interviewed some of my favorite photographers and some of, um, more importantly, you've introduced me to so many new photographers. And, you know, I really appreciate that. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Awesome. Well, I think you'll make a fantastic addition to the, uh, to the old library here. So, Thanks, man. Well, so for people that aren't familiar with you and your awesome photography, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I'm Siegfriedo Zimmerman. I'm a marine biologist, and I love spending time in nature and photographing nature. Uh, I'm from California, and I grew up in Los Angeles, and I'm currently living in Ventura County right now. I'm, I'm a husband to a beautiful wife, and I'm a new dad. Uh, oh, I have a four month old right now. Yeah, it's a steep and, learning uh, curve. <laughs> and you're not sleeping at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's gotten better. It's gotten a lot. Yeah, better. yeah, yeah. It's like that. That three month mark is pretty sweet. Yes, yes. I've at least it was for me. <laughs> we've definitely noticed a change in his sleeping patterns. Yeah, for the better. Yeah, nice. For the better. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Yeah, and uh, I've been photographing for two, 2011. So, oh, okay. yeah. 11 years. It's, um, it's about when I started, too. Right, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. cool. Awesome. That's all amazing, and I know we're going to touch on every single thing you just discussed yeah. in more detail. Mm -hmm. But I just wanted to kick us off with a really just rough and tumble question. I want to hear how, and more importantly, why Siegfriedo got into photography. Yeah, so there's... There's a bit there. That's a, it's a big question. So yeah. um, ever since I was young, I was really interested in nature and biology. It kind of stemmed from growing up watching um, BBC documentaries about wildlife and flipping through Nat Geo magazines and, and uh, listening to my dad tell his stories about his time working in, um, in a natural history museum as an uh, ornithologist in ah. El Salvador. So he has all these crazy stories about his time in the field. And I kind of like idolized this lifestyle of 
adventure and travel and spending times outdoors. So I was always interested in photography, uh, but I think I didn't start until 2011 when I was like 19 or 20. During my childhood, um, I think I was distracted with sports and video games, you know. Uh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I was a sophomore in college and I wanted to take a photography class. But the catch was that I needed to have a DSLR to be in the class. And I didn't have one at that time. And uh, I think I ended up telling my dad and my dad went out that Christmas and got a uh, Nikon D90 from Costco. It came in a oh. kit with like oh, two yeah. lenses and it was supposed to be a, the family's camera. But I think he knew like, and I kind of knew that that camera ended up being mine. <laughs> I was the Let one that was- the, uh... The 18 to 55 and the 55 to 200? I, it was the 18 to 55 and the 70 to 300. Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I had a DSLR in that spring semester. I enrolled into a photography class, uh, Photography 101, Digital Photography 101. And, um, you know, they covered all the basics, like exposure triangle, simple rules of composition, and and a little bit of the history of photography and we would work on projects exploring like different shutter speeds and all that stuff. And I was hooked. Like I was, I was so hooked. All I wanted to do was photograph. Um, <laughs> so much so that that semester, uh, I did poorly in my chemistry class. <laughs> um, so yeah, I was having a good time and, um, I would photograph everything, you know, from, uh, people, street photography, even though I didn't know the genre of street photography and like birds and flowers, whatever, whatever it was. Um, and around that same time, I was uh, also starting to go on hikes on my own and plan backpacking trips with my friends. Because before that, it would be like family trips, uh, you know, to family camping trips and a day hike yeah. here and there. Sure. Um, so it's kind of like this perfect timing of combining these two growing passions of uh, photography and, and outdoor activities. And um, like many of us, mm -hmm. I feel like, I think you as well, Matt, uh, you started off <laughs> yeah, hiking and wanting to document your adventures in the outdoors. Uh, yep. Yeah. And yeah, that resonates a lot. Yeah. And I, I did the same thing. I was like, I took my camera everywhere, photographed everything I saw in sight. And I think that's important when you're first starting out because it helps you right. kind of hone in what you're interested in. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And I think it took a couple of years of me like exploring, but I always knew I, I preferred nature photography. And I think around 2015, I decided to, I don't know, something clicked and I just wanted to uh, fully concentrate on landscape photography. Um, didn't want to be like, you know, jack of all trades, master of none kind of deal. And yeah, since then I've been photographing here in California, mostly. Uh, my whole portfolio is from California, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it's been, it's been a fun ride. Yeah. And fast forward to 2022, almost 2023 now, like, why do you make pictures now? Because I'm sure it's evolved. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, now making photos is a way of expressing myself that words can't say or I can't write them or say them. It's just a way of expressing myself. And that's the main drive for me right now. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Love it. I mean, yeah. that's what an artist does, right? Y yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, awesome, man. Well, so you're, you said you're currently a, a biologist. Mm -hmm. uh, I would love to learn a little bit more about how the connection between your scientific research and your photography, like what is the combination there? And maybe start out by telling us uh, about your scientific area of research. Sure, sure. So I'll give you a little bit of my like scientific background. Um, I got my master's at Cal State Northridge. I was studying coral ecology. So ecology is the study of how organisms interact with other organisms as well as their abiotic um, surroundings. So their physical surroundings. 
temperature, soil, depth, uh, things like that. Uh, I was working in a lab during my master's uh, that studied coral reefs called the Polyp Lab. And we did a lot of work out of um, Morea in French Polynesia, as well mm. as um, St. John in the Caribbean. Because um, there's no corals out here in, in California, so we had to travel to those places. And, right. And, sounds, sounds terrible. Oh, you know, it was, it was very hard. <laughs> you know, long flights, you're carrying all these <laughs> all this gear, but it was awesome. I, you know, <laughs> mid twenties, I was having the time of my life traveling to these places and we would go several times a year, um, for weeks at a time, you know, ranging from like four weeks all the way to 12 weeks. Wow. Um, yeah, I think 12 weeks was my longest trip when I actually did that when I was in undergrad. I, um, and I worked with, uh, my PI was Dr. Peter Edmonds. He's a very, he's a well-known coral biologist and one of the hardest working persons I, I know. Uh, and he does a lot of work looking at the effects of ocean acidification on corals, as well as uh, increased seawater temperature on corals. And when we would be out there on the islands, we would um, uh, work on our projects for our master thesis, as well as work on his projects. Uh, right. and, and we would do a lot of field work um, and uh, he has he has this project in St. John that he's been studying the corals there for over 30 years. So he's amassed this massive data set and you can kind of see the trends of declining coral cover from when he started. Um, so it's a lot of fun, a lot of field work, a lot of um, time spent in the water. So it's my guess is like temperature and pH levels and things like that. Uh, so increased seawater temperature has a negative effect on corals. The thing right. that happens there is corals have um, a symbiotic relationship with uh, an algae called Susanthelae. And this algae provides nutrients to the coral through photosynthesis. And corals uh, also feed with their little tentacles, but they need a lot of the nutrients from the zooxanthellae. And what happens when increase, there's an increase in seawater temperature, the coral gets stressed out. And for some reason, it just expels all the algae out. And mm. that's called coral bleaching. Um, so the, the zooxanthellae is what gives the coral a lot of its color. So when it expels, you'll see those photos of those really white coral. So, uh, it's lost half, a big portion of its nutrients, and it's slowly starving. Sometimes they get them back, but if they don't, they, that's a way corals end up dying. And as acidification is another issue where, um, in short, uh, the corals use calcium as their skeleton. And all, there's a lot of organisms that, that need it, that have shells and all that stuff. And basically, because of the ocean acidification, it makes those um, things that need calcium more brittle, in, in a sense. Right. Yeah. And not to get too far in the weeds, Yeah. no pun intended, but uh, <laughs> what causes the acidification of the ocean? Uh, it's the carbon mixing with the ocean, with water in the ocean. Uh, there's so a the chemical more CO2 process. in the atmosphere gets absorbed into the, into the ocean. ocean. Yeah. And there's a chemical process where um, there's calcium, there's a limited amount of calcium in the water. And there's the process where the carbon mixes with, there's a chemical reaction that takes the calcium out of the, and, and um, the animals can't use that to build their shells or their skeletons. Yeah. Gotcha. And yeah, I remember I listened to a podcast once where they were talking about the acidification of the ocean and how, like, if it goes unchecked, basically we're going to deplete our planet of oxygen. Yeah, because... kind of the potential end result because we get, like, 70% of our oxygen from the ocean. Yeah, and a lot of that comes from um, phytoplankton. And phytoplankton does use calcium and 
I guess without that, they would, you know, it would be a, it would be a pretty bad thing if we lose phytoplankton. <laughs> right. So then, how does the your interest in uh, coral and algae? How does that tie into your photography? So I think it just all ties in. I I love I'm I'm a curious person, and I love being in nature. And I'm kind of trying to design my life where I could be out in nature as much as possible. And you know, being a biologist gets me out there. And my hobby is also nature photography, and that gets me out in the field as well. It's just trying to be. You get paid to go diving. That's pretty cool. <laughs> like right now, I'm currently so after my master's, I got a job at UCSB um, as a diver, working for a PhD student that w- had a project in aquaculture, and he was looking at growth rates for different seaweeds to be used for. Food consumption. So I'm curious. Then, are a lot of your photography subjects marine-based? Then, no. Well, so I mean, I wish I had an underwater setup. Yeah. There's a couple reasons I don't. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, the equipment is very expensive. Oh, it's but really bad. You know, but also, um, I'm I dive a lot, and I I dive for work and have hundreds of dives that are work dives. And when we're underwater, we're carrying all this stuff like uh, transects, uh, dive slates, uh, quadrats, collection bags. I've even had to take down an underwater drill before. Um, so I can't imagine carrying a big rig of, with a DSLR or mirrorless camera right. underwater. And, and, and lights. Yeah, <laughs> and lights and, and everything. And, and then on the weekend, right. the last thing I want to do is go diving. <laughs> Right, 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 so, right. Yeah, so I've tended to go to the deserts and mountains, and uh, I do go to the coast sometimes, and I do like taking photos of uh, kelp canopies, like abstract yeah. photos of, of kelp from the surface. Yeah, I was going to say that's probably what I feel like you're most well-known for is those types of images. Yeah. Yeah, they've, yeah. Done, they've done pretty well, um, especially in the NLPA this year. So I'm curious then if it's not a marine, the marine subjects that you're so focused on, how has being a biologist helped your photography? Oh, yeah. So um, I think one of the biggest skills for a biologist is um, observation, Uh, having good observational skills and curiosity can go a long way. Uh, One of the first things I, one of the first pieces of advice that my advisor told me when I started in my master's programs. It was my first day in the field. And he said, all I want you to do is go out for a swim and just observe. That's it. So as I developed my observational skills, I feel like that translated to my photography. Because as a biologist, you're always wanting to ask questions and notice patterns in nature for why is this coral only grow at certain depths? Or that's interesting. I only see this um, manzanita growing on the north side of the mountain. Why is that? Something like that. Um, So owning those observational skills, I feel like have helped me um, pick out smaller scenes in nature. And that's what I like doing, taking photos of the small scenes in nature. Um, That and you know, being a biologist, you come with a background knowledge on a lot of ecological processes and, and life histories of certain um, plants or animals. And you could maybe notice certain things out in nature that without having that background knowledge, you might miss. Can you give us like one example in your from your own photography? where your knowledge as a biologist or your observation skills as a biologist uh, helped you make the photo or maybe otherwise you wouldn't have noticed it? Yeah, there's a few. There's one photo. I like spending a lot of time in Sequoia National Park in Kings Canyon. Mm -hmm. And there's a photo I have. It's an abstract photo of a sequoia and the bark is burnt. Uh, And I kind of like that, that, the abstraction of the dark bark with the, that cinnamon color bark. And it's, it's a foggy morning. Um, 
And the first thing that caught my eye was that burn scar. And knowing a little bit of the life history of a sequoia, they need fire to reproduce. And uh, I'm not talking about high severity fire because that burns everything. <laughs> right. uh, I think sequoia experienced some pretty large fires these last two years or something like that. Um, but a moderate fire is beneficial. And out here in the West, a lot of the ecosystems have evolved and been used are used to periodical fire. Um, so uh, the burn scars drew my attention and it kind of gave me an idea to, to make a composition out of it. And knowing that without the fire, these sequoias wouldn't reproduce because the cones sense the heat of the fire. After, once the fire is done, they release the seeds and they drop into the, to the soil and they need this uh, mineral rich soil after a fire to grow. And it removes competition for the little sequoia saplings to get a foothold essentially things like that and there's so many other ecological processes and uh, i like tying projects to to certain uh, ecological processes and we could talk more about that yeah well before we move on yeah i want to ask um, maybe one or two more questions about the science sure side of your work so for those of us that aren't scientists you know maybe we just have a passing interest in in the life sciences um, how can knowledge about ecology, biology, and natural history of the environment enhance or aid our photographs? Yeah, so let me start off by saying you don't need to have this knowledge to make creative and <laughs> impactful work, you know? I think totally. humans are <laughs> genetically wired to feel good in nature. Like you could show someone a photo, you could show someone that's not, uh, you know, an outdoorsy person or, or doesn't spend time in nature, a photo of a beautiful oak tree or a majestic well, and they'll have like an emotional response to it. And they don't need to know the name or what species of tree or, or, or well, uh, well right. it is. Um, that being said, I see ha having these, this background knowledge is like another tool in your photography uh, toolbox, you know, just like, learning how to use filters and Photoshop, Lightroom, etc. Um, as landscape and nature photographers, nature is our main subject. And um, when you know a little bit about how nature works, I feel like that could be very beneficial. For, for me, <clears throat> um, I kind of I like how I like knowing how things work and are around me. So if I'm walking down the trail and I have some sort of idea of what's going on, I kind of have a more, more of a familiarity with it, have a stronger connection with the subjects if I know a little bit more of the life history. So if I'm walking down the trail and I see a chaparral yucca blooming, um, you know, it could be just a pretty flower, but it's also, you know, this yucca has been growing for 10, 15 years waiting to bloom and once it's bloom, it blooms, it dies. So it has this one instance to reproduce and set, uh, passes genes to the next generation. So that flower is a pretty flower, but it also has more meaning to it. Um, and I like connecting stuff like that in my photography. And I feel like other people that have could have this background knowledge on ecology or, or life history uh, could make those connections. And and when for me when I feel closer to my subjects, I'm, I'm in a better mood. And when I'm in a better mood, I, I tend to make uh, work that I'm happy with. Uh, yeah, that's cool. There's, um, here in Colorado, there's a, there's a plant that grows pretty abundantly in the mountains, uh -huh. um, but it only flowers, I want to say like 10 years after a really, really, really powerful snowmelt or uh -huh. something like that. I think it's called a century plant. Mm -hmm. And it, and then once it does that, it, it, it's gone forever. Same kind of idea. And it's like, once you know that about it, it's like, and you see a huge grove of them, it's like, oh, that means that like, however long ago, I probably just butchered the whole thing, sorry. But <laughs> 
However long ago that happens, there was a huge amount of water, and that's an interesting story. So exactly, it adds a a, a little bit more complexity to your photographs. It's not just a pretty flower; it has a story behind it. It's not just a location. Let's say there's there's something in the background that right. gives an extra layer to your photograph. Right, and I think to your point. The more you have that knowledge, the more curious you're going to be about the subject and then the more connected you are to the subject. And then the more interestingly you will photograph that subject. So I think it it just keeps propelling your images better and better. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, they don't work all the time. <laughs> right? There's, no, totally. Trust me. <laughs> there's times where I've seen like, oh, there's a burned area and I see like this little sapling of a redwood. I'm like, oh, I know redwoods do like these fairy ring things. Let me try to capture it. It didn't work out, you know, uh, but it, it creates opportunity for you to try and, and, and feed that curiosity. And the beautiful thing about biology is when you, there's so many, there's so much unknown and there's so many questions to ask. And once you ask a question and, and, and you have an answer, let's say that answer usually leads to two more questions that are even more right. nuanced than the first one you started with. It's like this right. endless, uh, you know, pursuit of knowledge. It's, 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 it's fun. Yeah. And I think it helps to propel and keep you interested in photography, you yeah. know, because it, it just feeds off of each other. Yes, definitely. Well, so I'm curious then, like, what are some very actionable steps that the layperson can take to gain more knowledge in these areas of expertise without you know, spending a fortune on multiple PhDs. Well, yeah, definitely don't get multiple PhDs. Maybe just one. That'll be <laughs> good enough. Uh, uh, joking aside, um, yeah, it's I. Okay, so books go a long way. Um, if you, depending where you're, where you live or where you photograph, you could easily Google natural history of Rocky Mountains or natural history of the Cascade Range or the Colorado Plateau. And there'll be at least one book on that. And those books are usually uh, like not easy reads, but they're also not scientific journals where it's like very right. dense with vocabulary. Um, they're more, uh, you know, streamlined and for the, uh, for the public to read. Right. And that's, he, those books will contain everything you need to know for the ecosystem uh you photograph in um so there's that and when you're in let's say a national park go visit the visitor center uh they usually have a book session section um with these kind of books in there and you can pick up a field guide as well so you have an idea of what you're photographing that's a good start yeah no that's that's a good point it just reminded me like just yesterday i went to the black canyon of the gunnison and there was a sign at one of the lookouts I went to where it talked about why one side of the canyon had a different shape than the other. And it was all about the direction that that side of the canyon faced was, you know, south facing. Mm -hmm. And all the heat was radiating off of that side to the other side, which created more opportunity for snow melt so that there was more erosion wow. of the soil. So that side was at a less steep angle than the other side. I thought that was like, oh, that's genius. <laughs> there, yeah, there you go. Yeah, and, and visitor centers have a lot of information. Definitely yeah. if you're in a state park, a national park, go spend some time in visitor centers, look at their exhibits. Uh, when you're on a nature trail, don't ignore the plaques that are there. Yeah. Uh, those are full of information as well. And normally parks do offer ranger walks naturalist walks if you have time definitely do one of those they're full of all the natural history of the location you're in and let's say you're you're in the rocky national rocky mountain national park uh well that information you learn just doesn't pertain to rocky uh rocky mountain national park it contain it it involves the whole rocky mountains you know right it's the same mountain range and there are some different uh, like habitats within, but for the most part, you, you're going to have a good idea of what 
what's happening, what you're you're looking at. So there's that, and um, I would also say, you know, go visit your local natural history museum. Those are full of information as well. So those would be some actionable steps people could take. Strongly cool. recommend books. <laughs> yeah, and I think it can transform your images, right? Like, like just using my example from just yesterday, normally, compositionally, I would have excluded more of that other side of the canyon. Mm-hmm. But after I saw that plaque, I was like, oh, I actually want to include more of that to kind of help tell that story. And I don't know if it makes for a better photograph, but it makes for a more interesting story told through the photograph. So, right. Yeah. Right. Maybe it's maybe not better, but different. Right. Yeah. 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 For sure. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. So earlier you had talked a little bit about um, working on projects and I was curious uh, what your approach is to working on photography projects and how does your relationship with biology influence it? Yes, I I really enjoy organizing, culling my photographs into projects. It's, it's fun for me. And, um, you know, back in 2020, I took a portfolio development course with William Neal. Oh, yeah, perfect. And he, he's all about... Uh, thinking in themes and working on projects. I'm not sure if he still does that um, portfolio review course, but he definitely came out with a book. created a book? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that book has everything that I learned on that course. So I highly recommend that that book. I think it's called uh, The Photographer's Portfolio Development Workshop. It's great. Yep. So ever since I took that portfolio development course, I like the idea of thinking of projects. I try to incorporate all my background knowledge of ecology to spark ideas for for projects. So I have quite a few projects ongoing right now. They're all far from being, being done. Uh, and they all revolve around some kind of ecological process or habitat Mm. um so i really enjoy doing that for and they could be as they could be small like six ten image projects or they could be very large projects that i don't know i have a couple projects that have no end in sight but that's okay i'm not in a rush you know i love what i'm doing and i can see myself doing this for many 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 years so there's no rush in that and um I do want to say that when I go on a hike, I, I don't photograph necessarily for these projects. They're in the back of my head and everything, but I, I just go on a trail and whatever catches my attention, I'll photograph it. And at the end of the day, if, if it fits a project, that's perfect. If not, that's okay as well. Okay. Um, I was wondering. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Cause I've had lots of ideas for projects, but I've still, I haven't, collected enough images yet to like cohesively piece together one although Mm -hmm. like i feel like every time i go out i'm like oh that would be cool as part of a project but then i i'm like so easily distracted that i just keep going so yeah but i appreciate that you have the discipline to keep it in order (laughs) and sometimes i force it like i'm I'm not gonna lie and then if it that image ends up not working so i've kind of learned the hard way of just sticking to my gut and but I, sus- uh-huh. I suspect that those failures are helpful in like advancing the project forward sure definitely yeah. um so yeah the, the projects could be a big or small and i like tying them to ecological processes so for example one of my projects i've been working on for it's probably like one of my older projects it's it, i titled it where deserts meet hmm. so i really find ecotones very interesting Ecotones are areas where two habitats, um, there's a transition zone between two habitats. So they could be really small, like um, think about the edge of a meadow and the forest. Or mm-hmm. they could be re- really big, like a transition zone where two major deserts meet. Right. Um, or it could do with elevation, you know, going from a montane forest to a subalpine forest. There's mm-hmm. always a little transition zone. And What's interesting about these transition zones is that you get huge amounts of biodiversity. 
because you have species that could from both habitats in this ecotone. So one of my projects where deserts meet uh, is centered around Joshua Tree National Park. And, you know, we think about Joshua Tree National Park because of the Joshua trees. And that's half of the park, the, which is the Mojave side, a higher elevation desert. But the other half is part of the Colorado desert, which is uh, part of the greater Sonoran desert. And it's a much lower elevation desert. And they're, they're different deserts. Uh, but what's amazing of Joshua, about Joshua Tree is that you could find species from both deserts in this little band of 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 the park uh, so the project is showcasing the plant life uh, that you could find in this small diverse uh, area so gotcha. i like coming up with like things like that and that's a big one and there's another uh for example there's a small project that i've been working on I, i'm aiming for like six eight photos it's called um, Sculpted by Scarcity. And I really mm. find ancient bristle cones really fascinating. You know, they're one of the, some of the oldest living organisms on the planet that are not clonal. Uh, I think the one tree is over 4,000 years old. Right. Uh, so what, I, what this project is doing is, is focusing, it's very abstract photos of the, the twisted roots the branches, the scars that these trees have that have been accumulated over thousands of years. Um, this tree, I, I titled this Sculpted by Scarcity because these trees thrive in harsh environments. Uh, the, old, the, the harsher the environment, the older the tree is. When it has like a nicer life, <laughs> they, they tend not to uh, live as long. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, so... They're found in really alkaline soil. Uh, you know, they're exposed to extreme temperatures. Uh, they're hit by lightning, strong winds. You know, they suffer a lot. And I like, I feel like that that species of trees shows that character through, through the twisted roots and branches. And so that project is, is that's another example of a project that I've kind of tied to the net. Uh, life history of a tree. And there's a lot of those in Great Basin National Park, right? Yeah, in Nevada. I the closest ones to me are in the White Mountains of California. Yeah. Same tree though. Same tree. Yeah. Okay. I think we have a few oh, yeah. in Colorado, but they're super uncommon. Hmm. Yeah. And there's yeah. a couple species of bristle cones. I think there's one in the Sierras as well. But the ancient bristle cone is is in the White Mountains in California and in Nevada as well. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Well, that's awesome. I think that's timely too. I think just yesterday or the day before on Landscape released an article written by Theo Bosboom about working in projects and he has a bunch of actionable steps you can take to improve your photography projects in his article. So I think that dovetails nicely with what we've been talking about as well. Yeah. That's that's great. His work is is really good, and I do like how you know, shaped by the sea. And then he had a project on canyons, so I right. do like I like seeing those cohesive bodies of work. Yeah, me too. I'm yeah. just too dis easily distracted. <laughs> I, I find everything interesting, and so yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's not bad at all. It's just different ways of approaching. Yeah, guitar for sure. Well, earlier you kind of hinted towards this, but I'm I'm curious um, how and why you've gravitated towards photographing smaller scenes in nature. You know, it's just, I find smaller scenes give me a larger degree of freedom to mm. show my unique vision of, or I wouldn't say unique, but how I see the world. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I, I like, taking photos of grand landscapes every once in a while when the conditions present itself. And, but there's something about intimate scenes. And early on, um, I remember uh, I would be hiking. So, I, you know, I started hiking. So I'm always wanting to finish the trail. 
<laughs> right, uh, me too. You know, get to the top of the mountain, get to the waterfall, something like that. Right. So especially if it's a new trail, it helps when I've done the trail before, then I don't feel that pressure. But um, I remember just walking by so many, so many scenes, well, that I, I imagine I walked by, maybe I wouldn't have noticed them at that time. Right, right, right. right. Uh, but I remember thinking, you know, I need to slow down. And, and whenever something catches my eye, just try to make a composition out of it. And I started doing that, and the subjects that caught my attention the most were the middle to small scenes. And ever since then, I've I just really enjoy photographing them. It gives me, like I said, a larger degree of freedom of, to express myself and to show my unique point of view. And you've completed far fewer trails. Uh, I still complete them. <laughs> it just takes longer. I just walk back at during the dark <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny because i i had kind of the same thing i probably 20 gosh i want to say like 2010 through 2016 i don't think i ever photographed a small scene once mm -hmm. and i'm sure i walked by some amazing stuff you know yeah. but yeah oh well <laughs> but you know you were probably a different person back then so maybe you would have noticed them yeah um, i think that's right yeah uh, Sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm friends with uh, Martin Gonzalez. Yeah. And we recently, uh, well, first of all, actually, I met Martin through NLPA. Oh, really? Yeah. I remember looking at the winners list and he had won an award for a rock abstract. And yeah. I'm like, oh, there's a, another Hispanic guy doing landscape photography. I'll reach out. And it turns out he's in uh, Los Angeles as well. So we've been, uh, our, our friendship started through the, through the um, competition. That's amazing. Great. Yeah. And then have you hung out with Alberto as well? I'm meeting him on Wednesday. Oh, cool. Yeah, I See? found out his, we're, yeah. We're building community. Yeah, I found out, well, he's friends with Martin and right. they went to college together and uh, he's his family's down here in LA. So he's coming for the holidays and we decided to go, the three of us to go out and get some beers. So Perfect. I'm excited to meet him, yeah. That's uh, awesome. Yeah, and all three of you guys love to photograph the smaller scenes, which is yeah. super cool. Yeah. Um, oh, so I was saying that I went on a trip with Martin recently, and uh, it kind of happened where I did so many stops along the trail that I lost track of time. And <laughs> I got back to the campsite two hours after sunset, and he was like, did you enjoy your hike in the in the dark? I'm like, yeah, yeah it was not bad. <laughs> That's awesome. He's a great guy. Yeah, that that sounds like me in fall. Like, I just get distracted, and I'm like, before I know it, it's dark. I was like, oops, I gotta go back. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, but it's so fun. And the oh, one last thing with uh, with the small scenes, there's an endless amount of subjects to photograph. Totally. So you're never running out of subjects, and there's something that you missed, you know, last year that you could that piqued your interest this year. Um, so I, I'm having a good time. Yeah, it was funny. I was listening to another landscape photography podcast that shall not be named. And they were interviewing a landscape photographer who primarily does grand scenic photos. Mm -hmm. And they made a comment that like, in a typical trip, they might make three or four photos in a single day because, you know, you're photographing at sunrise and sunset and you're mm -hmm. photographing like one or two compositions. And I'm like, oh, that, that used to be how I did it too. But now I'm like, my last fall color trip I did, I think on one of the days I took like 600 images, you know? And yeah. it was all small scenes, like like little vignettes of nature, mm -hmm. like little macro scenes. Like focus stack. Tele focus stacks and telephoto <laughs> scenes. And yeah. I mean, for me, it's like, the more and more you get into those smaller and intimate scenes, I find that there's much more opportunity to just be engaged as a photographer throughout the course of a day that it's almost impossible to be bored. Yeah. Uh, yeah, on my trips, I start off the same way where, you know, the middle of the afternoon would be kind of like the rest period. Right. But now 10 a.m. to... 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. It's nap time. Exactly, but now or I beer find time. myself. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> now I find myself getting to camp at like noon, one, and then 
having a quick lunch and going back out, you know? Yeah, totally. And some of my favorite images have been taken in the middle of the day. My kelp images are middle of the day with the polarizer. Oh, there's no, there's no good light in the middle of the day. Yeah. They're, they're bad images, Matt. (laughs) That's funny. Well, so kind of along those same lines, um, a little twist on that topic. I'm curious uh, what your thoughts are on the trend towards perfectionism in nature photography, because that's something that came up quite, oh, quite a lot in the judging process of NLPA. There was a number of judges that got hung up on some of the images because, you know, oh, I wish this wasn't here or, oh, if only they would have composed it a little bit differently or, Mm -hmm. you know, oh, they too bad they couldn't clone out like these things over here. And Alex Nail, one of our co-founders, he was like visibly upset by some of those comments. Like nature isn't a sterile environment, you know, it's a chaotic thing. And so I'm curious kind of what your thoughts are. Yeah. Um, So I embrace nature's imperfections, you know. I'm going to talk about how I view it for my photography. Um, I feel, well, there's a fine balance, I feel like, because you also don't want to leave some distracting elements that could make your image look like, I don't know, you just started photography or something like that. You know, that random branch sticking in. Right, haphazard. Yeah, but you don't want to clean your images too much where they start looking, at least to me, a little bit too clinical. Like they were manufactured in the lab. And, right. and yeah, like what Alex said, you know, we all spend a lot of time in nature and nature doesn't really present itself that, like that, you know. So I, I tend to. Not very to, often. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not very often. So I tend to embrace those imperfections. You know, I, as long as they are not distracting from the main subject, um, I'll, I'll leave those in. Uh, so, you know, I'll, I'll even photograph trees that are not quote unquote perfect. You know, they have some blemish on the bark or, or yeah. blemishes on, on the leaves or the leaf has been bitten by a, a bug or something like that. It adds another element of storytelling as well. You know, the, the, the leaves were a little blurry because it was a windy day, you know, right. Leaves move. So I tried, I try not to get hung up on those details. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but, um, I don't know, the longer I've, the longer I've done photography and the more photographs that I look at, the more photographs that I make, when you start to see those kind of highly polished, genetically modified images let's call it that gmo (laughs) photography i don't know but you know you you start to kind of just notice it you know it's almost like you don't notice it because of how good it is you notice it because of how perfected it's become and it's almost for me it's almost becoming like a negative thing yeah yeah i like that term (laughs) yeah gmo photos yeah and and (laughs) going off what you said, I don't want my audience to have, to be distracted by the thought of, is this Photoshop, you know? Uh, I don't want that having that um, distraction. So anything I could avoid, anything I could do to avoid that, um, I'm all for. And uh, yeah, yeah. embrace nature as a perfection. We won't dive into the whole editing debate again. Uh, I think perfectionism is a different enough subject. Yeah. And I think we've, I think we've paid it its justice. Yeah. Uh, a side note earlier, you said about like talking about chaotic scenes and everything. Yeah. So I, I, that's another thing. Um, I've seen that term used frequently and to describe, you know, busy scenes, woodland, whatever it is. Um, but you know, I, I think, those scenes are not necessarily chaotic. There's not like a disorder in that scene. There's order there. We just don't necessarily see it. We lack, you know, the understanding or knowledge to see the order that's happening there. So right, well, nature is complex. I, was... I Complex is, uh, I like to use the term complex more for those scenes. 
I was going to say, I think a skilled photographer can take a complex scene and compose it in a way that minimizes quote unquote distractions and emphasizes the the order within the disorder in a way that's aesthetically pleasing. But I think that takes a tremendous amount of practice and field craft in order to execute Mm -hmm. successfully. And let's be honest, like, at least for me, it's much easier to come home and clone stamp out stuff that's distracting than to spend an extra 15 or 20 minutes in the field getting it right. So I understand why it happens because it's, I I think it's harder. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's very difficult. Yeah. So for people that can pull it off, I, my hat's off to you. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I went to the summer of 2020, I went to the Redwoods for the first time mm-hmm. and we had no fog, <laughs> which I feel like, you know, Redwoods photography, it's like fog is kind of like a crutch because like it just makes everything awesome, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, you have that fog that comes in and it's just so much easier to isolate your subjects. So since I did have fog, it's actually nice because it was kind of like a it was like a seven-day mastering composition workshop where I had to really, really challenge myself to make images that made sense in that really complex forest. I'm not saying I was like ultra successful with it, mm-hmm. but it's an amazing way to improve your photography is to spend a lot of time in the forest, especially in suboptimal conditions and try to make sense of it. Yes, yeah. I think it's one of the hardest subjects in photography organizing a complexity of woodland and forest it's very difficult yeah <laughs> yeah when i have a successful woodlands photo i'm always very happy yeah because yeah. with that one successful photo i guarantee there's like 45 that didn't work so uh, yeah <laughs> yeah well you had also alluded to this earlier but mm-hmm. um I know that you like to photograph close to home at the same national parks and the same locations. Why have you chosen this approach to making images? Yeah, so this started fairly early on for me. Um, I remember I had a long list of places I wanted to go photograph. Patagonia, Iceland, the Rockies, you know. And I was starting photography and I remember doing a couple trips to Sequoia and I came back with like two images I liked. So, <laughs> I, so as a, as a like 21, 22 year old college student, I'm like, man, how many flights do I have to take to Iceland and, and, and Patagonia to make meaningful work? <laughs> right. So, like this is, I'm doing the math in my head yeah. and I don't think I have enough money. Yeah. So, um, that's how it started. <laughs> but gradually, um, I, I like the more I visited the locations, the more familiar I got with, with, I tend to go to Joshua tree a lot, Sequoia, sometimes the channel islands and Zabrago, all the parks in, in, in California. Um, and I like revisiting them. And every time I come back to them, it's just this sense of familiarity. It just puts me in a good mood. It's like revisiting an old friend every time. And I feel like I'm more productive because if there's some different type of light, I kind of have an idea where to be or or if I'm feeling like I want to photograph some mocotillos, you know, I should, this trail usually has these, this plant I want to photograph or some something like that. Uh, so there's that sense of familiarity. There's that sense of um, feeling closer to the location you're photographing that I like. And when I'm, uh, when I look at my work, I like having a cohesive look to it versus uh, like a patchwork of greatest hits kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I really like listening to Pink Floyd. Okay. Uh, the Dark Side of the Moon album. Uh, I love how the, the songs just flow throughout the album. And one after the other has like a, a nice story to it. And then when you listen to their greatest hit album, there's something missing there. You know, it's awesome oh. songs, you know comfortably numb and and you're expecting like a the song after that and it's something else and you're kind of like hmm 
I don't know if I feel that as I prefer listening to the album from start to finish, you know, Abbey Road from the Beatles, that second half of the album feels like one song. So mm. I like having a sense of cohesion in my work and not having like this greatest hits album where they're not the photographs are not so connected. And I going back to the same places, revisiting um, similar subjects, I feel like gives you that. Um, you know, it, it could, you could argue it could get boring, uh, but I'm not necessarily saying, you know, you do the same trail every time, you know, these parks are huge. Every time I go to like, let's say Sequoia, right. I end up doing a, a number of new trails and then I'll revisit some old ones just to see what's happening. And you could visit in different seasons, um, different weather conditions, uh, even if you hike the same trail, the light might be hitting different subjects in a different way. So, and also when I started going to Sequoia or Joshua Tree, I was 20. I was a different person than who I am today. I'm 31 and I'm diff making different photographs that I was back then. So it's always, there's always something new. Right. Well, and from a practical side of things, I mean, I just went to Antarctica. Of the however many days I was gone, I had, let's see, eight of those days were travel, right? Mm -hmm. So there, those are eight days that I wasn't making images yeah. out of the total number of days I was gone. So I feel like the closer you photograph to home, the more opportunities you have to just make an image. Yeah. Yeah. It might not be, you know, the most mind bending photograph of all time, but you have more opportunities to flex the create creative muscle and to really hone in on the craft. True, true. So I know that you've chosen to edit your photographs with a more natural presentation, staying true to the subject that you witnessed. Why have you chosen to take this particular approach with your photography? So I, I want to stay true to the scene that I'm, the scene and the, the, the scene that I'm experiencing. I like staying true to that. I don't want to, I photograph for myself um, and I don't want to feel good. <laughs> like I want to feel good when I, with the work I present and put out into the world, you know? And I don't want to have the thought of like, mm, I stretched the mountain, I added this, I added clouds. I don't want to be lingering. It would have, personally, it would, it would affect me uh, by not being able to sleep at night, basically. Uh, I have an image, one of the oldest images that I have in my portfolio uh, where I removed a tiny stop sign in the far distance. And that, that still bugs me. That's just the way I, I like to approach the, my photography. Yeah, I totally, totally appreciate that. I mean, I have a lot of the same feelings myself, and it's a big reason as to why we decided to create the NLPA because I felt like there wasn't really a format for people that made images in that way. So thank you for sticking to it. And for supporting the cause. <laughs> All right, uh, coming up on our last questions here, Sigfrido. Uh, who do you recommend for the podcast? Who are some of your favorite photographers that you would like to hear on this podcast? So the photographers I'm recommending, um, so I sent you these names before the announcements of NLPA. I had no idea that these three photographers were going to get third, fourth, and fifth place. Uh, so, so I just wanted to say that <laughs> before before listing them. So the first photographer I would recommend would be Alfredo Mora. He's a Colorado-based photographer and who works with intimate scenes. His work is very um, very nice. He does a lot of um, double exposures that it takes you a while to realize it's a double exposure and I like that about his photography 
Uh, so I highly recommend Alfredo. Um, another photographer I recommend is Jason Pettit. He's a Canadian-based photographer who also does intimate scenes, and his work is phenomenal. I love whenever he posts a photo, uh, and he likes to use metaphors to dis to to add complexity to his to to his photography. And last uh, but not least, I recommend Hans Gunnar Aslaksen, who's a Norwegian photographer. He's a, I think he's a designer as well. And he also does uh, intimate scenes very well. And he recently started doing some black and white images that are uh, very well done. And those would be the photographers I recommend. Those are great. Those are all great. And I'm glad that you prefaced it that wrote those recommendations down before uh, the NLP results came out because we had actually scheduled this podcast quite a long time ago and you had come up with those names a long time ago. So I think it's pretty amazing that you predicted three of the top five winners of the NLPA portfolios of the year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was I was very surprised uh, in a good way. Um, like they're very skilled photographers. I just, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's funny. Well, so I'm curious, can you tell us about your fundamentals of ecology Zoom sessions that you're offering to other photographers? Yes, so these these are, um, so I'm considering, I'm curious if there's interest out there in the landscape community uh, for a lecture that, that um, talks about the fundamentals of ecology. Uh, the plan is, to for me to create a lecture that covers all the topics that I find interesting and may be helpful for photographers to have as background knowledge when they're out in the field. And the goal is to have um, uh, photographers use that and and maybe they could start noticing things that they hadn't uh, before on their hikes. And maybe it could help them stir some creativity or cr uh, come up with a project uh, surrounding an ecological concept. So I would create a lecture where covering the fundamentals of ecology. If there's interest in that, I, I would be happy to pursue that. And uh, people could email me at my, there's a contact page on my website or message me through social media. If I kind of want to gauge the interest out there for this. And if there is interest, I, I there's possibility of uh, me doing more lectures on more specific topics like desert ecology or mountain ecology or photographers who like spending time on the coast would probably benefit from knowing about uh, rocky intertidal ecology. So I really enjoy teaching. I did it during my master's degree and I just, um, spreading the knowledge on how our world works is exciting for me and I wish to share that with others. Um, so uh, if people could also sign up to my newsletter and they, that's where I would announce um, this course that I'm putting together. I love it. I feel like there's definitely going to be interest out there for something like that, especially from someone who's actually a trained biologist and an ecologist. So I think that's a great idea. And hopefully you'll get some people listening to the podcast who will sign up to your newsletter and, and, and showcase to you that there is interest. Yeah. Awesome. Looking forward to that. All right. Well, Sigfrido, this has been super fun and I'm glad we could finally sit down and have this conversation you're you're certainly uh, one of my favorite up and coming photographers, and I love the work you're putting out. So 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 keep it up, man. Thank you, Matt. I'm really happy to be here, and I had fun talking with you. And um, you're also creating really great work. Um, and yeah, keep it keep them. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, keep those images coming, man. Awesome. You too. Well, thank you to Siegfriedo for the awesome conversation. I really do enjoy your work a lot and I hope that you keep at it. 
I love how you have weaved your knowledge of ecology into your photography. It really shows. Next week on the podcast, we have a photographer from Chicago, Illinois, Hank Erdman. Hank and I had a wonderful chat about his approaches for composition using all five senses. I think you're going to really enjoy it. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.